Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the current state of news and how the way news is presented in the U.S. has shifted during the pandemic, including a greater acceptance of emotion in news coverage and a discussion of the role of objectivity and how to navigate biases to report contextually and inform audiences. My guest is John Zipperer. Vice President of Media and Editorial at the Commonwealth Club, where he hosts the week-to-week political roundtable. John, you're my first guest on this podcast, and it's been more than a year later. We're in a new administration. We've had so many massive ongoing stories over the past year. I don't know if they're viewing news differently, but people are trying to navigate a lot of things as far as how news is covered, how journalists go about covering news, things like that. So I wanted to kind of touch on those things with you. And one I wanted to ask you first, because you host the week-to-week political roundtable at the Commonwealth Club, have you noticed any shifts over the course of the year in how people are talking about news? Uh, No, in the sense of that I've seen, you know, how it's being discussed or how they're perceiving it. Um, yes, in the sense of how it's literally being done, right? Because a lot of reporting now is done like this, online with a phone. I mean, obviously phones have been used for a long time, but I mean, um, I know reporters who used to go out and hit the streets and go, you know, track down the person they're talking to. And now they're trying to set them up in Zoom while the you know, the cat's climbing over them in the background and the dog's barking. Absolutely. I've noticed that there's a lot more. You want to get perfect audio. So interview your person in person. And now it's like, yeah, Zoom audio. It's great. It's just great. It works fine. Commonwealth Club recently, our AV director sent around an article and they were talking about how NPR would never in the past have considered airing something that someone recorded on their cell phone or something like that. And they're like, now it's like, yeah, we'll take it. Right. You know, right. Zoom audio, we'll do it. Yeah, it's the content. It finally... Finally, to that point. So one thing else I've noticed that I want to touch on is the way news is being covered, not just in like that, but also the idea of allowing journalists to be a bit more human. Um, and this is something that I think we as you know, journalists themselves have struggled with. The idea of I'm supposed to be an impartial observer and I'm supposed to share the information with you. And, you know, we had um, CNN Sarah Seidner broke down on air because she'd been covering these horrible stories about people dying and hospitals being overrun and families torn apart and medical workers overwhelmed and finally live on air she's like it's just so bad you know people really need to know and and in that moment of humanization that I think helped people understand the story better and yet there is a sense that is that a breach of journalism and it's not that it hasn't happened in the past I can think of several examples but but it seems to be um, there's at least in my world there's sort of this push and pull and grappling with how we do that. Um, I'm interested in what you think about that. Uh, I'll be honest. I'm maybe I'm old school. I, I I will allow someone you know that that someone is human and and, and such and that's going to happen. I'm I'm not for piling on and, and criticizing them. I don't think it's a good thing, just from the sense of if you know the the general person out there watching it when the person breaks down, who's giving them the supposed authoritative report on something, does that increase their trust in what this person says? Does that make them think, oh my God, what's happening here? I mean, they've just seen a news report on, you know, people dying in, in ICU units or whatever. I don't know that seeing someone cry about that would help me. Okay. Okay. But what, what do you think? What's your take on it? I 
think there's a space for it, but I, with the caution that you offer, but I do think there's a space for it. And so I go back to, for me, in my experience, in my world, news world experience, 9-11, right? So 9-11, I was sobbing in the newsroom and yet still trying to do my job, right? Like putting information out, also understanding deeply and, and really being proud of the fact that I was providing information for people that they needed to know. But like like dealing with all of the things that happened at 9-11, at some point it's going to overwhelm you because we are human. Just last night I was watching a documentary that a professional acquaintance I know created and it was about massive tornadoes. And there was a moment when the uh, meteorologist realized how big this tornado was in this particular town and was like, get out, everyone now, please. you know, and she started to panic a little, but she still, many residents said later, it was the panic in her voice that made me take it seriously. And I got out and I think she saved my life, you know? And so I grapple with it because I don't want a bunch of emotional messes who aren't, who aren't really, you know, that's not what I'm looking for. But I feel like, you know, like when you're dealing with COVID, when you're dealing with uh, violence against black people, against Asians, uh, when you're dealing with a lack of connection from social distancing, when you're, you know, all these massive stories that are just, it's not just one day, it's big and long term. How, how do you remain detached and cover that stuff? I would worry more about the manipulative aspect of it. Certainly, if it becomes an accepted thing, you know there are journalistic organizations out there, both normally and in air quotes, journalists, on-air talking heads, who will manage to look uh, frightened, happy, trying to tug your heartstrings. And if it happens and it's genuine, I, I certainly understand that. And I'm, I'm not going to criticize someone for it, but I just don't think it's a good thing. That's fair. And I respect that. Can you talk a little bit more about why you don't think it's a good thing? I know we want to get into talking about objectivity and, you know, when is it maybe not necessarily, but I mean, like go back to the new journalism movement and, you know, it's absolutely wonderful to, to go back and, and pick up an Esquire or something, you know, some of these other big publications from the sixties and the seventies and read some just on the ground reports, whether it's Vietnam or the, the racial upheaval at the time. Um, or all this stuff that was going on in California and all this kind of, I mean, someone putting themselves in there and, and such and doing that kind of a narrative story, I don't have a problem with that. I do think that's separate and different from this is what happened and blah, blah, blah. I knew in the 1980s when P.J. O'Rourke was doing just fantastic reporting where he would go to Russia on this boat trip that was put together by The Nation magazine. So a bunch of lefties on the trip with him going through Soviet Russia and all the people he was with were just gobbling up what was being spoon-fed to them by the government. And whereas P.J. Rourke, being P.J. Rourke, would every time he got a chance, he'd get off the boat, go into town and get drunk with someone and would actually talk to them and learn what's going on in the city or something like that. Okay, I knew P.J. Rourke had his own political viewpoint. Um, I knew he wasn't going to churn out statistics on the Russian budget for housing development for the next five-year plan. I couldn't have cared less. What I wanted from that story was the local angle. And you get much more of a sense of what it actually was like in Soviet Russia um, in the 1980s from that kind of thing. On the other hand, if you were reporting on the famous Reykjavik summit in Iceland between President Reagan and Gorbachev from the Soviet Union, I don't really want someone cracking jokes about how Gorbachev looked or who wore what or what the people at the bar down the street after you know you were done covering the program, what you want, I don't care. I want to really know, wait, wait a minute. Reagan actually proposed giving up nuclear, wait a minute, what? 
that's real stuff. That's fascinating. And I need to know that that actually happened because there's a whole bunch of stuff that then goes from that. It's like, oh, wow. Reagan, I thought was the warmonger. Wait, he actually proposed, you know, and wait, that was actually his thing. You know I mean? There, there are places for both. I'm not opposed to someone putting themselves in the story. I think you can do so without at the same time manipulating. I didn't feel manipulated by P.G. O'Rourke because I knew what he was doing. I knew where he was going. And this might be a cultural thing. You know, I'm from the upper Midwest, you know, German background, Protestant. It's like when someone is trying to convince me of something and they're getting overly emotional, my first reaction is not, oh, this is genuine. My first reaction is, what are they not telling me? Why are they instead doing this song and dance? Uh-huh. Obviously, different audiences, what I'm getting at, may very well see that as completely different. I agree with you. When people get overly emotional, I also, I'm like, okay, what, what, what are you hiding? And this is, come on. But I, I will say, you have to have the things that you said. You have to have a foundation of trust. I have to have built up some sort of trust in this person, that this person is credible, that this person does have maybe my best interest at heart, that they're giving me information that's going to help me. And that they do know the difference between the importance of getting policy information out or information I, that's going to affect my life that I need to know versus helping me understand the gravity of a story that's around me. I think COVID-19 in this pandemic is kind of all of that wrapped up, right? So I want people to, you know, journalistically explain to me how the vaccines work and and how, you know, the case counts and the the data and the stitch, I, all that But I also want someone to shake us all into understanding that this is quite serious and to treat it as such. And I think I'm not in Sarah Seidner's head. My read of that was that she was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so frustrated that people really aren't really aren't hearing this. And I I can't do the status quo anymore. I have to push it. Let me push back on that then. Yes. Is that then her also expressing a lack of faith or a lack of confidence in her own reporting. Oh, Meaning what I'm showing you is what I'm crying about you not understanding. So what didn't I show you? How do I have to do that other rather than then crying? Oh my gosh, what a great question. And you know, that brings to mind because I just watched this documentary last night on the tornadoes. So I'm going to bring it up again. Was this the tornadoes that had the sharks in it? <laughs> no, these ones didn't have sharks. No, no sharks. <laughs> Okay, so it's not as dramatic. Not as dramatic, right. So, I mean, really. You know, this F5 tornado. And one of the meteorologists said, I'm showing graphics. I'm showing people where it is. They know they live right there. He said, but there was some somebody, either a colleague or who was actually in front of it, filming it. And he said, without that footage, I don't think people would have taken it seriously because the graphics can only do so much. And this was nobody getting emotional, but they were just showing, you know. So, So, to your point, what else can we show as journalists and how else can we tell the story? Like you said, how else can we craft the story and put the information in front of people to get them to understand? So that is a fair question. I don't know how to answer it, but I think that's important. Well, yeah. What, what do you think? I think I would prefer to see them, them show that in the reporting, you know, all of the stuff about the power of photo, power of video, power of talking to an expert, power of talking to the woman whose house just got blown away. I'm all for showing the, the mother whose, whose kids are still back at home where the tornado is and she's crying because, uh, you know, you don't want to focus on her and get ratings out of that. But I mean, 
seeing her there, she's talking willingly to the journalists and she's saying, I'm really you know, terrified of what's happening to my kids. And I can't even call them to find out if they're in the basement or if they went next door to the neighbors or whatever. Um, that's really powerful. Um, and I'm not someone who thinks that the journalist needs to be a robot. And again, there's, there's, there's no way to be. Though I'm sure we well, actually probably in social media, we do have robots who are serving in the news. Yes, we do. We have AI now. Yeah. Yeah. The images that have always struck me the most about tornadoes is actually the after. Well, they'll show this neighborhood and it's flat. And that just stuns me because, of course, I'm so used to thinking of cities where they're all this built in stuff. And then when you see, oh, that's what it is. And that's what it became after different things will probably connect with different people. But again, there are things there that you can show and talk about both from what's happening now as this is the third tornado to, to come through Oklahoma this past month, you know, and here's some of the results of the past two, you know, a uh, local police chief, you know, Joe Smith or whatever says, look, we weren't prepared last time. So you've got to take it seriously this time, get, you know, get to shelter or something like that. That I think is of more use and uh, more proper for journalists to do. That's fair. That's fair. And I think I'm mostly there with you. I think I'm okay with a journalist in the moment, feeling it, showing compassion, showing empathy, having an emotion. I am very much okay with that, but I don't want to see an everyday emotional journalist, right? I, I want to see someone who's doing their job. And if emotion happens to be part of that, that's okay. Like thinking about my own experience, you know, 9-11, yeah, I'm at my computer. I'm at my desk sobbing while I'm talking. I am. I just am. But you know what? My stuff is journalistic and informed. So I think that's kind of where I'm at. But I really appreciate, yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate your perspective on that. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with John Zipperer, Vice President of Media and Editorial at the Commonwealth Club. Let's nudge over to a related but slightly different topic is this idea of objectivity, neutrality, bias, etc. I've been doing a lot of thinking about objectivity in recent months because, I mean, I think there's a place for it, but I feel like the way we think of it right now is actually harming journalism in a way and harming our ability to truly inform. What do you mean? From what I understand historically, objectivity was meant to be in the process, the journalistic process, and that it was inspired by the scientific method. But the human was never meant to be, quote, objective. And humans, really, we cannot be, that's just not a possibility for us as living things. We, we have our biases, we have our perspectives, we have our experiences, whatever it may be. And that's why you need the process, because you need to walk through a journalistic objective method to put your information and your news gathering through that objective process to make sure it's where it needs to be to inform and contextualize. So for me, that brings up a lot of things like, well, then we need to grapple with our biases and we need to look at what we're doing and we need to open our eyes a little bit to how we're talking to our audiences and whether our language is you know, inclusive. Anyway, I've just been thinking about this a lot and it's a conversation that I want to have because I think I'm still forming my ideas around it. But I would love to get your thoughts on, on all of that. I think you're asking the right questions. Um, in ye olden days, when I was younger, um, which I guess we now all know was the 1980s, um, <laughs> I would be much more likely to say, yes, the, the role of the press. I expect anything that's not an opinion column to be news. And by news, I mean telling it to me as objectively as you can. Okay. Then again, I was a big fan of the New Republic magazine in the 1980s. I started reading it when I was in ninth grade, when a friend of the family gave me a subscription. And this was 
completely a journal of opinion cover to cover it was opinion great journalists very very lively and such and um, it was laser focused on politics and how it worked who did what why they did what how this bill actually came to be who these personalities were you know all this kind of stuff so you you really got a sense of both behind the closed doors of what was going on in washington but also just when you saw stuff happening oh they're doing that because of that I learned a hell of a lot from it and it was all from opinion journalists, but you know, I've read and heard, and I know people who've worked at the new Republic, new Republic, they used to argue like mad in their office. They used to have shouting matches and all this kind of stuff. And the point being, when I got my magazine subscription issue, I expected that if they talked to this person, they actually talked to this person that they're actually accurately reflecting what this person told them. I also know that, that article did not just go from Morton Kondracki's typewriter into the typesetter and then, you know, into the proofing process. It probably was argued about with the editor-in-chief in their staff meetings. They probably had a big argument about it. It was questioned every step of the way because the last thing you as a writer or an editor or a publisher want is you put something out there and a member of the audience, you know, sends you a note saying, oh, yeah, what about X, Y, Z? And you're like, don't. That's supposed to be figured out way earlier in the process. And if you want your audience, especially to pay for what they're getting, the value add is that kind of consideration. You can do that within an opinion, a non-objective atmosphere. But again, all those arguments are going toward what they think is real. What is the real truth that they're trying to get at? Which is another way of saying, yes, they still expect that to be able to stand up in a world of objective truth. Yes, it, there is an objective process. And that's where opinion journalism is still journalism because it's gone through the journalistic process. Talk and tabloid, you know, that's not journalism. You know, they might all have a POV, but one of them is journalism and the others are not because of that objective process. And because you knew, I know the perspective of this magazine. I know what I'm going to get. I know it'll be intelligent. I know they've thought about it. And you think of a lot of other countries where it's not about objective journalism. You know, it's about everything, you know, in, in England and in Spain, they all have perspective, but it, it hopefully seeds discussion across differences rather than putting us into filter bubbles. You mentioning journalists in other countries made me think of, uh, interviewed this past year, Maria Ressa, who is an award-winning journalist in the Philippines. Um, I don't know if she's literally at the moment in jail, but she's being charged with multiple things that they just, the government just keeps piling on her. Utter garbage cases. But of course, to them, whatever they don't like is, quote, fake news, unquote. And she comes from that. I think she worked at CNN and, and other you know, Western organizations, went to the Philippines. And at one point, she had the biggest private news organization there. Then she went off and she now heads up the Rappler. Um, which, you know, God, I hope survives all of this, this controversy, but it's an interesting melding of someone who has both Filipino and American work and experience and is then kind of bringing them together in a, in a place where that's really very much a battleground of objectivity, opinion journalism, government pressure. I think when people kind of lose it with journalists these days and, and maybe start criticizing them, um, they need to realize there are genuinely some journalistic heroes out there still doing fantastic stuff. Absolutely. And Maria Ressa is absolutely one of those journalists. To apply that here in our context in the U.S., we had for four years a president trying to discredit news organizations. And we had journalists trying to figure out how do we 
cover this, there's a thinker named Jay Rosen. He runs this site called Press Think. And one of the things he says, you need to know where you're coming from and what you're trying to do and to whom you're speaking. But if you don't know what you're trying to do, then you're going to get you're going to get into that he said, she said type thing. You're just going to try to be objective by including all sides rather than really being like, I'm here for the people. You know, my audience needs to know and therefore I need to critically report, even if the powers that be don't think that that's, quote, objective reporting. It is information that the public needs. I need to provide context. I need to provide information. I don't need to be objective. So that's where I think I am starting to get a little more vocal about the objective thing, because if I'm trying to serve the people, I think the past four years have brought us to a space where I'm hoping we start talking about this stuff more because we tried to be, I think, objective for much of the four years as in general. I mean, there were journalists, again, doing heroic work, but I think a lot of the mainstream outlets were like, okay, how do we do 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 this, right? Like, I don't think we, but, and I think we're still grappling with it. I think we're seeing now some journalists operating in the established big media sphere who are kind of like, I think, overcompensating from the worry of, oh, people will thought we were too tough on Trump. Well, look, we're tough on Biden, too. We're questioning what he's doing. And it's like, what are you questioning? That major bit someone? I mean, this, this is just not, it's not the same. You know, he said, she said, well, Trump says this, opponent said that. Biden says this, opponent said that. But it's different. <laughs> One lies to their teeth, perhaps. Therefore, the news is, what are they lying about? Why are they lying? You know, who's to benefit from their lying and stuff like that? Right. That's the story, not he said it and this person disagrees. Right. So you have this President Biden who is, I think, blessedly boring. And yes, this is opinion. Blessedly boring and, and I think competent. But you have this kind of story that is, oh, President Biden got his stimulus bill through Congress. But now the real challenge begins. Well, says who? Why? What do you know for sure that there's, there's an actual challenge now or that it now becomes more difficult to do this or he's made an error by focusing on this topic and not on this topic because he has to choose priorities? It's like, oh, Biden's tackling transportation this week. Well, maybe he's tackling transportation this week. And it's not an admission of failure for him to not whatever, establish life on Mars or something instead. Right. I think that's in our psyche now. It's like we want everything all at once, you know, whether it's political, whether it's entertainment, whether it is. And really, I think as a group, as a society, we've lost sight of the fact that you can't have everything all at once. And I, I noticed this a little bit in the in the vaccine distribution. Like, yes, there are distribution issues, not not to deny that. But but it takes time to make the vaccine. You know, there was a manufacturing error, et cetera. And I've noticed that some of the people I hear are going, well, I mean, I they said I'm eligible, but I can't get an appointment. And then they get an appointment 12 hours later. That's not a long way. I mean, it's, I do want it right away now, too. But in the scheme of things, that's not a long wait. Back to your conversation about Biden's administration. You can't do everything all at once. It's all important, but you've got to figure out how to proceed. And it doesn't appear to be a failure making a priority list, right? I find myself less interested in the live news than I used to be. Uh, you know, I'm much less likely to listen to uh, or watch the State of the Union address or a presidential debate unless I have to, just because, A, I'm going to hear about it all regurgitated many, many times. The last thing I want is that instant analysis. And when it's a, a live news event, so like the trial going on in Minnesota right now over George Floyd's murder, I'm not following that closely because I can't stand to hear the instant analysis. And, you know, it's going to take 
days or weeks for people to start to come in with the actual analysis that's grounded on something. And that will interest me. And otherwise, when you're just doing the laser focus on what's happening right now, and my experience of it happening right now is the most important thing. Obviously, a big part of this is what role and how is social media involved in all of this. But the driving of it, both in terms of kind of the prioritization of what stories are, are hot at the moment, as well as these expectations that I have to have it now and that what I hear now or watch now or see now is fundamentally true, I think is very damaging. I think that's actually damaging much more than someone crying because they're witnessing a horror. Fair enough. Yeah. And it's funny, as you were talking, I was thinking I used to, and I still do, like if it's a congressional hearing, I actually want to watch it cover to cover if I can, because I, I want to see it for myself so that I can compare my own experience to the analysis. But I also know that there are people who have- Lives? Yeah, lives. <laughs> but also people talking about it that are smarter than, than I who don't have a life and just want to sit here all day and watch it, that they're going to be able to give me perspective that I can then weigh against my own witnessing. But I also agree, and, and you you bring me back to sort of my early days of news. One of my first jobs was was transcribing the O.J. Simpson trial. Wow. Oh, my God. And so I had to watch the whole thing. And I remember it was this odd thing for me because when the prosecution was presenting its case, I actually thought the defense was going to win. And then when the defense presented its case, I thought the prosecution was going to win. So wow. all this is to say, I felt like they didn't do a great job presenting their cases. But yeah, at any given moment, I don't have all the information, right? Someone's going to need to pull that together, or I'm going to need to consider it all together after some thought and time to be able to make an assessment of it. And that's where I think we could serve ourselves well as a society by really starting to understand what that all is. There is spot news coverage, there's daily news coverage, there's analysis, that it all plays a role, but we have to understand what we're getting and what we're looking at. I want to make one more point based on what you said earlier. You say you need you don't watch daily news. And, and I've heard that, that apparently CNN's viewership dropped a, a, a good chunk after the uh, inauguration of Joe Biden. And someone made the analysis, I think it was on Twitter, and said, yeah, of course, if there's a hurricane or a big storm, I'm going to watch the Weather Channel. And then if it's a sunny day, I'm not going to be watching the Weather Channel. He's like, it's not like I don't find value in it. It's just no. I don't need it right now. And so I loved that analysis because it was like, it's true. You don't have to just scrap everything because people, they'll come to you when they need to. For me, it's it's sort of helping people understand, doing the media literacy of this is this type of news. This is this. Right. And, and from the inside the news business side, I would say there's also the problem of, you know, in, in the old newspaper days, it would be how many you've got column inches you're going to fill. You know, sometimes you have too much. Sometimes you don't. And you're like, what do we put in that spot? Um, you know, you've got airtime. It's going to be filled. We, we've got an hour long program. There's going to be something there. One type of filler that really annoys me is the kind of instant really groundless analysis. Um, and we see this in the, in the pandemic. And I recently wrote about this, what a former boss of mine used to call kind of a thumb sucking story. Kind of like, well, because of this, all of this is going to change and it'll never be the same uh. after this pandemic. You know, whether it's dating, sex, going to movie theaters, uh, going to concerts, uh, watching TV, pretty much everything has one way or another been said, oh, that's never going to be the same. That's the type of story that is just not going to interest me because it's almost as if just from the headline, the writer has communicated that I'm not serious about this. I'm just thinking, you've filled your spot. You filled those column inches. You've ended your program. Yay. You know, get a popsicle. 
but um, as your audience member, you've, you've imparted nothing to me. You, you've actually misinformed me by making me think something possibly was true that was not. Yes, absolutely. And I think about we always like to pin stuff on stuff, right? So I go back to 9-11 again. They pinned the airline struggles on 9-11, but airlines were struggling before 9-11. Movie theaters were seeing a decline in audiences before the pandemic. Now, you know, what happens? Will they go away or not? You know, we, we don't know. I mean, I don't think so, but we don't. But, but the fact of the matter is like that you can't pin the woes of this industry on the pandemic fully because there were already trends happening prior to the pandemic. So there's that oversimplifying as well that, that frustrates me. And I want to see a good analysis. I want to see someone really consider and explain all that. That's what I love. Context. Thank you to my guest, John Zipperer, Vice President of Media and Editorial at the Commonwealth Club, where he hosts the week-to-week political roundtable. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.